First of all, it's time for our Shapirouette with Bruce, whose other job is, of course, Exec Director of the Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Bruce, the uh, Joe's been in uh, Lithuania and Europe uh, talking up NATO. What was Ukraine top of the agenda? You know, Joe Biden uh, is playing a very complicated game on Ukraine right now. Um, yes, in Sweden at the NATO summit, uh, uh, you know, Biden had one primary goal, which is to keep NATO together at a moment when the uh, when the alliance appeared to be fracturing over. Uh, Sweden's membership in the alliance, with Turkey saying, uh, no, we don't want Sweden in this, etc. Um, that was overcome, I think, by promising some fighter planes to Turkey and who knows what else behind the scenes. Um, but there's also this small matter, not so small matter, of cluster munitions, um, which, of course, Biden decided to do just before going to Sweden, decided to provide to Ukraine, to replenish Ukraine's stock uh, against not only the opposition of uh, a number of other NATO members that regard cluster munitions as outlaw weapons, but against opposition in his own party for the we, first we, time. Forgive me for interrupting, but we should remind the listener that a cluster bomb has 72 smaller bombs within it. Indeed, and which is it's designed explicitly for killing large numbers of people very quickly on the battlefield. Um, it's viewed as a way of equalizing power against a very well-armed enemy like Russia. The problem with them, of course, is that not all cluster – well, the problem besides just they kill people uh, in large numbers and are a weapon of mass death is that the mass death continues long after the war is over. Not all um, cluster warheads explode and they are responsible for a large number of deaths of civilians. Ukraine – it keeps swearing up and down that they will deploy uh, cluster munitions only in very, very selective locations, etc. But they're they're dangerous, and not only are they dangerous to civilians, they uh, were dangerous to Joe Biden's Ukraine project politically. He he pursued this in the face of opposition from many members of his own caucus, from Democrats in the House and the Senate, who urged him not to do it. At the same time that he was pursuing this, you could argue, escalation um, of U.S. commitment in Ukraine, he was, on the other hand, at NATO, um, urging a kind of go-slow approach on admitting uh, Ukraine to NATO, insisting that, no, this is not the time, and not only is this not the time, but no... Uh, despite President Zelensky's pleas, we will not make a commitment to any particular time for Ukraine and NATO. And, you know, this marks – this is something that we've seen Biden do since the very beginning of Russia's invasion in, the Ukra in Ukraine, which is on the one hand um, assembling and pushing forward this kind of very robust military – response through supply of weapons to Ukraine, through NATO, etc. And at the same time, tr 
trying to identify certain outer limits, um, sending messages to Russia, um, a kind of backhanded negotiation that's saying, no, you don't need to feel existentially threatened. Yes, we want to respect Russia's sovereignty. You don't need to worry about nuclear weapons, all of that sort of thing. There's a very... Um, complicated kind of geopolitical math, I think, that Biden is practicing here, which is more complex than simply arming Ukraine, though that's, you know, the, the major visible thrust of the policy. There's also a lot of background messaging to Russia going on. Um, and coming out of the NATO summit, he, you know, he did come back with a more unified alliance than he went in with. So from a geopolitical strategy point of view, you could argue that the NATO summit was a success. So mission creep on the one hand, and uh, some Republicans are now holding uh, military spending hostage. Well, indeed, and Ukraine is part of it. Um, you know, the, the House did the other day, the House of Representatives, dominated by Republicans, did pass... Uh, this year's military spending bill, but they did so over the objections of a number of members of the Freedom Caucus, President Trump's aligned far-right faction who oppose further military spending in Ukraine, who think it is against uh, American interests to keep pouring money into the war. Um, now, they didn't prevail in that, but where the far right did prevail in the defense spending bill is adding to it a whole lot of provisions, a raft of provisions aimed not at military wars abroad, but culture wars at home. Well, let me, suggest, let me suggest the topics might have included uh, abortion, trans transgender issues, and uh, diversity training. Indeed. Uh, and, you know, most significantly in terms of the number of people affected, abortion. The Republican defense spending bill would prohibit the use of military funding for service members to travel or get medical care related to abortions or for abortions themselves. Um, no no gender-affirming care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this mirrors uh, an attempt in the Senate to hold up, well, the Democratic-dominated Senate, to hold up the military spending bill by Senator Tommy Tuberville, who, who also tied abortion spending uh, to ending a filibuster. Now, that was overcome. The Senate today is picking up debate on the defense spending bill. These House culture wars provisions will almost certainly be stripped out before the bill is then sent back to the House. Um, what we're seeing, though, is something historic. Republicans, uh, look, uh, the, uh, uh, I must say they've got my sympathy because quite clearly, Bruce, a woke military is clearly a weak military. <laughs> well, that that will be the Republicans' point, but you know it's it it's it's historic because the Republican Party, of course, for your lifetime and mine, has been the party of the military, been the party of robust military spending, um, and to have a majority of the Republican House push a right wing social agenda above traditional defense spending priorities says something very important 
about the center of gravity for the Republican Party in the Donald Trump era. It says something about how the Republicans need to play to their base to succeed in getting reelected to the House or to prevail in presidential primaries. But these very positions put them at odds with um, a, a large number, the majority of American voters. It's a, you know, they are playing their own kind of complicated math at home, just as President Biden is playing abroad. We've been uh, kicking the uh, Robert F. Kennedy uh, Jr. can down the road a bit. Let's deal with it right now because he's uh, thrown his hat in the ring for Biden's job. Well, indeed. Uh, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the, the son of assassinated senator and former attorney general Robert Kennedy, um, announced in New Hampshire a couple weeks ago that he is running in the Democratic primary. Um, and Kennedy is a... a um, a contentious and pretty toxic figure within the Democratic Party. He had a noble and within early his and within his own family. It, indeed, as of today, within his own family, um, you know, and Kennedy, to say with respect, had had a noble early career as an environmental attorney, as the founding director of of uh, Riverkeeper, a terrific environmental organization uh, in the Hudson River Valley. But for many years now, his main uh, <laughs> job in life has been promoting a wide range of anti-intellectual conspiracy theories around vaccines and false theories around vaccines, uh, around COVID-19, around many, many issues. Bruce, um, slow down a bit because I want to tease this out. Let's look at some of his uh, his, his claims and campaigns. COVID was targeted to attack Caucasians and uh, but protected Jews. Well, specifically, he argues that it was engineered in U.S. biolabs in Ukraine uh, to protect Jews and Chinese people and attack. I mean, there's no point even in repeating the substance of these since they are not tied to any evidence whatsoever. Um, similarly, um, you know, the... He, he's argued that uh, vaccines promote autism, even though there is zero evidence of this. The numerous studies have shown vaccines in young children uh, that are done around the world to be really very safe. Look, nobody expects that RFK Jr. is going to win the Democratic nomination, but he is running at a time when you know, President Biden is not popular within his own party or the electorate at large. And there's a lot of fear um, in Democratic ranks that he will introduce into the mainstream of Democratic Party debate and politics the kinds of toxic, um, scapegoating, anti-Semitic, racist conspiracy theories that have marched the Republican Party since Donald Trump brought them in. Um, it, you know, it really does speak to the strange currents of this time in the United States. Is that, that why he's pulling in more support from Republicans than Democrats? 
Well, certainly Republicans would like to see him prevail. I also think there are people in the Democratic Party who are who dissent with Biden's views on Ukraine and in, and um, you know RFK Jr. has uh, taken for himself the the anti-war corner of the party. Um, it's going to be a, a, a really difficult choice for anti-war Democrats uh, who don't like NATO, who don't want to see spending uh, on Ukraine, who are <laughs> will find their only candidate being someone who promotes anti-Semitism. Um, the really striking thing over the weekend has been after a tape of these comments about Caucasians and Ashkenazi Jews and so on appeared to see uh, his own sister, to see the Robert F. Kennedy Foundation, to see other family members, uh, former Congressman Joe Kennedy, all uh, aggressively not only distancing themselves but denouncing as vile was one of the words um, RFK Jr.'s words. Um, he, you know, he's a public figure who's ha has a lot of name recognition, a famous name, who's had a, a complicated life, but. Um, at this point, he's fracturing not only de the Democratic Party, but his own famous family. Now, finally, I hear that President Herzog is about to address the Senate. He is, uh, and just as notably, uh, you know, that, that was planned. In an unplanned move, President Biden is inviting Prime Minister Netanyahu to Washington. Um, this at a time when Biden has been very vocal in denouncing um, Netanyahu's policies uh, against Arab Israelis in the, in the West Bank, in Gaza. Um, he's take, Biden has taken steps that no American president would have even thought possible a few years ago in distancing Washington from Israeli domestic policies and Israeli um, Israeli policies targeted toward Palestinians, putting in, not in jeopardy, but putting into historic tension the relationship between mainstream Washington and Israel. Um, and again, it, in a way, it's a reflection of the kind of dual politics that Biden was practicing in Ukraine, on the one hand arming and on the other hand setting forth limits. Similarly here, forceful anti-Netanyahu rhetoric and now turning around and inviting BB to Washington. Good on you, Bruce. Bruce Shapiro and Bruce will be back with me in a fortnight with his next Shapirouette. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.